This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 3rd, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Presidential second terms aren't typically very good for free trade. Dan Eikenson, director of the Cato Institute's Trade Policy Studies, evaluates some of what should be on the agenda for President Obama's second term. What evidence do we have about presidents entering second terms and what their records are with respect to trade? You know, Bush had a much more difficult time his second term than his first. He started to face opposition primarily because, you know, the, the, the Democrats took control of the Congress in 2006 and took the trade agenda off track. You know, the first Bush term was committed to trade liberalization, pursuing multilateral, regional, and bilateral agreements. Uh, The second term was was marred, uh, particularly uh, after the midterm election in the second term when the Democrats took control of Congress. Uh, They decided to shift the emphasis away from negotiation, liberalization, cooperation, uh, and refocus it on enforcement. Uh, And so for the past few years, and certainly that has been the, the driving force behind the Obama administration's trade policy, enforcement. Has been has been the primary emphasis. Uh, as we're starting the second term of the the Obama administration, it's uh, the trade agenda looks to be getting back on track uh, in the sense that we are liberalization, cooperation again are are coming into focus. The the Obama administration has set as a deadline uh, October 2013 to conclude the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations, which have been going on for a few years. And, and that's a negotiation that currently includes 10 countries, the United States and nine other countries. Uh, it conspicuously excludes uh, Japan, which would really make it a big, a big, much bigger agreement at the moment, and China. What would the Trans-Pacific Partnership entail? Uh, the, the purpose of the negotiation is to well, the, the administration calls it a 21st century agreement. Uh, it is to you know, liberalize traditional trade barriers, remove tariffs and quotas and, and, and reduce subsidies, uh, but also um, give gives space to intellectual property rights, um, investor rights, uh, to make statements about state-owned enterprises and what role they can play in, in global economics. Um, Look, if it happens, uh, this has potential to be a big agreement uh, agreement that can set standards going forward in the 21st century and other countries might uh, wish to to join. Uh, But we also run the risk of getting caught in a cul-de-sac as we did with the the Doha round, the the failed multilateral round that was launched in 2001 uh, and is now universally declared dead because you have so many stakeholders uh, pushing – particularly U.S. stakeholders, pushing our trade negotiating partners to liberalize what has always been considered sort of domestic regulatory space. And there's a lot of pushback. Um, The Australians, for example, are adamantly opposed to what is called these investor state dispute mechanisms where uh, U.S. companies can actually sue the the Australian or or other trade partner governments uh, for – for not making good on their on their commitments, um, I, I tend to agree with the Australians on this. I, I don't think that uh, that investors need to have their investment decisions subsidized uh, by having access to this, these uh, third party tribunals. Investment is a risky undertaking to begin with, 
and uh, foreign investment even more so. So when U.S. companies want to invest abroad, they should be able to uh, uh, measure the risks, uh, determine what uh, what returns they need to cover those risks, uh, and um, American consumers and foreign governments should not be asked to subsidize uh, those decisions. It it puts them in a less liberalizing mood, our trade partners, when they if they have to give give in on on matters like that. So when uh, liberal Democrats typically uh, oppose uh, many trade agreements, or I should say, try to correct wrongs that are built into trade agreements moving ahead, those typically take the form of trying to promote a, a global standard for. Uh, how workers are treated, uh, provide certain uh, constitutional rights or provide certain, and I mean that more broadly, not U.S. constitutional rights, but provide certain uh, protections uh, for workers. Now, Al Franken has taken up that mantle in, in the uh, Senate this time, but what animates that? The original sin, in my opinion, is U.S. interests going after uh, liberalization of mechanisms that were not typically associated with trade, uh, like this investment uh, um, uh, situation I just described, like intellectual property protection. When U.S. businesses went for things that were beyond tariff removal and, and traditional trade barrier reduction, um, unions, import competing interests started saying, well, we need labor and environmental protections in there. Uh, and as a result, trade agreements are much less about trade. And they're called free trade agreements, but we really don't accomplish free trade, and we actually get into lots of other things. Al Franken, I think, is representing, is carrying the mantle for U.S. unions. He's interested in preserving Buy American provisions uh, and making sure that we don't negotiate away uh, certain restrictions we have on textiles and apparel. Um, there, these so-called free trade agreements are weighted down with provisions that are distinctly protectionist. Uh, yes, there's liberalization in some uh, some areas, uh, but there is also commitments to not liberalize in certain areas or to liberalize very slowly. The the administration is also interested in uh, pursuing the U.S. EU free trade agreement, which has been uh, you know out there in, under consideration for a number of years, uh, often thought too intractable uh, to pursue, but uh, a, you know a, a Bi-national commission uh, came out with a plan that says, you know, this is doable. Let's let's pursue it now. And I think that's convenient for uh, the the Obama administration to show its TPP negotiating partners in the Pacific that hey, we have options. Uh, so stop dragging your feet. Uh, start listening to what we have to say. Start uh, you know um, following our demands because we have alternatives, and if this takes too long, then we're going to focus our attention elsewhere. Meanwhile, the, FTT, uh, the TPP partners also ha have alternatives as well. Uh, China is involved in another initiative, an ASEAN initiative, uh, to create uh, sort of a, a Pacific region free trade agreement as well, which excludes the United States, as this TPP excludes China. Uh, in fact, you know, the TPP and the U.S. was born of a, uh, of a State Department initiative rather than a USTR or a Treasury Department initiative. It was really geared toward facilitating the pivot toward Asia and sort of isolating China uh, and, and really checking its rise. So 
that's another aspect of the TPP that we need to take into consideration as, as we move forward. Multilateral trade agreements are good. Bilateral trade agreements are good. Uh, what about unilateral trade agreements? That is, the United States making its declaration, there shall be free trade with the United States. Is that, does that on better footing now or is on a worse footing now at the end of 2012? You know, I think it is on better footing. Um, trade liberalization over the years has sort of been pursued on multiple tracks. Um, but if you think about it, what you have during trade negotiations are uh, negotiators, diplomats, all clamoring for more export access. Uh, the goal of trade negotiations is to get as much export access as possible while giving as little as possible in terms of access to your own market. And the, the objective of these negotiators or the politicians who are involved is to come back and make and give the appearance that they, that they won the negotiation as though trade is a zero-sum game. Well, if you think about it, you know, exports are – growing exports is, is a good idea. It, it helps the economy. It, it, it grows the economy. But why do we focus on exports when we can move earlier in the supply chain? Our exporters before their exporters are manufacturers or service providers and they in that capacity uh, have to contend with U.S. regulations, uh, taxes, uh, decaying infrastructure. And their importers. And their importers. There are a lot of import duties in place right now. Uh, you know, 58% of uh, U.S. imports are intermediate goods and capital equipment. Those are costs to U.S. businesses, U.S. producers. If we want them to be more competitive, as President Obama has has said time and again, he has this national export initiative, uh, which he equates with competitiveness. Why focus your energies sort of at the end of the supply chain and assume that all the barriers these companies face uh, are foreign-born? When in fact, there's plenty, to, plenty of focus uh, here in the United States that could yield tremendous benefits. You know, superfluous regulations. Let's streamline them. Let's get rid of import taxes, particularly on inter intermediate goods. That's what the Canadians and Mexicans did during uh, the Great Recession, when when uh, other governments were considering raising their trade barriers to to protect their companies. Uh, our North American neighbor said, "Well, look, if their revenues are going to go down because global demand is contracting." Let's at least allow their costs to go down by getting rid of import tariffs uh, on their intermediate goods. That's a good idea for all the time. Dan Eikenson is director of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.